Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, of course, all the swinging sounds and support those that support us. Uh, thank you for the, your patience in uh, in uh, sort of listening to the the promos we put through. These are people we are pleased to have as part of the show and allow us to do it and keep doing it. And allow me to talk to some of my, um, well, my heroes, for a matter of fact. And today is no exception. Dr. Keith Humphreys. You can follow him at Keith N. Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S, professor and section director for mental health policy, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Dr. Humphreys, am I getting all your titles correct? I mean, there's so many of them. Which, which is your standout title now? Uh, it, you're, you're very, very kind, I have to say. Um, but yes, you got all my titles correct, and I appreciate the chance to talk to you. This is a good, this is one of my senior research career scientists at the VA Health Center, Research Center in Palo Alto. And... Um, I, I'm not. Sure, I'm almost overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. Let me just say that I um, probably my last contact with you was listening to your lecture to the California Society of Addiction Medicine. I think it's now a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, in which you laid out a very cohesive argument about the importance of mutual aid societies. I've had the privilege of speaking to John Kelly also, and I know right. he's got a big. Uh, uh, Cochrane study about to be released, hopefully any day. I cannot wait. But uh, I'm hoping you'd review some of that for my audience. Yeah, sure. So um, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, at the beginning of my career, which is now, you know, quite a while ago, um, were seen kind of dismissively by a lot of my colleagues and also by me. I picked that attitude up uh, from, from them, you know, that they were, oh, you know, they don't have degrees, they don't have training, they don't standardize, they have these folky slogans, and it all seems kind of hokey and all that. But, you know, the purpose of science is to teach us things, including things that may clash with our uh, our prejudices. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work. John Kelly does a lot of work. Uh, other uh, scientists uh, uh, like Bill Miller is a very eminent guy, uh, studied Alcoholics Anonymous over many years. Bill Miller is the motivational guy, right? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. You yeah, know, and he, also was one he, of the I heard him speak, Project Match. I heard him speak once about the development of motivational enhancement therapy, and he said something to the effect of – I should go listen to that lecture again – that his original study was really to – it was really a study of empathy. He thought that how to get how do people make connection and then humans change in this thing we call a relationship, and then it's other people turned it into this motivational enhancement manual. Yeah, well, it's funny how you learn things. Um, <laughs> yes. but yeah, I, I've heard I've heard him tell that story too. And you know, project and there's actually a piece of that uh, definitely relevant to uh, you know twelve step is you know the big famous study Project Match, the biggest study of therapy ever done that Bill was one of the leaders of, had a twelve step condition in it, and a lot of the people running the study thought that was the untreated control condition. Wow. In other in other words, the real treatment, you know, the motivational enhancement, the cognitive impairment would show that, you know, that the things developed by psychologists and scientists were better than this, you know, kind of hokey AA stuff. And it turned out that the 12-step condition did as well, except on abstinence outcomes, where it did even better. And that's now a very common finding. So, you know, um, I, I became uh, uh, supportive of AA uh, because, you know, I just you know, couldn't deny all these uh, results coming back over and over again. And they supplemented what I would hear from people who were actually in the program to say, wow, we're really lucky to have this uh, thing in our field. I mean, it's fantastic. Well, it's fantastic. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's available everywhere. 
It's free. It reduces health care costs above and beyond the fact that it's free. And it works. I don't understand why there's a bias against it. It's so hard for me to understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's being the biggest game in town. Sometimes you you may get some people kicking against the goad. Uh, Part of it is that, like everything in our field, as you know as an expert, nothing works for everyone. Yeah. So there are people who go to AA and they hate it, you know, and it just doesn't work. And and so I've certainly, you know, seen people and then and then they get kind of an allergy to it because everyone says go to a go to a and they're like i already went and i didn't like it yeah um so i understand that um and then and then the other thing is it's it it, you know among the kind of the posh set or whatever you know people who read the atlantic and things like that um it kicks against the goat a bit by saying you don't need to be educated you know to make a difference so it's, it's kind of saying you know people with a lot of credentials aren't necessarily more knowledgeable and to people who have a lot of credentials, as you and I do, that sometimes is a bit of a kick in the ego and our sort of way of looking at the world. And so I think it gets a little bit of uh, pushback from some people uh, on that basis. He, he, he talk to us a little bit about the warm handoff, because that's another piece of data that uh, if you don't, if you don't, um, con- well, boy, I've got to get the words right. If you don't provide, I, don't, I was going to say control for, but that is a different wrong sort of. <laughs> way of describing it. But if you don't provide, it can work against this thing we call mutual aid. Right. So, you know, the, when I talk to people, clinicians in the field about uh, mutual health groups, I often say, oh, yeah, I definitely connect my patients to that. And what they mean is, you know, I hand them a pamphlet and say, you might want to try this. And and very few people take, take you up on that when you do it. And like, why? Well, it's kind of scary. You're walking into a room full of strangers. You're going to say, you know, you're an alcoholic or an addict. That's intimidating. Um, the practicality is intimidating. Where is this place? How are people going to talk? What's going to happen? And what's been shown by terrific research by people like my colleague Chris Timko at the, at the VA in Stanford is that just a little bit of a warm handoff where the clinician, instead of just handing the brochure, says, look, this is what these, this program is. Here's what's going to happen at the first meeting. Let me ask, do you have any questions about this? Are you concerned how to do it? And I would like to link you to an experienced member of this group who will take you to your first meeting. And then, you know, they'll, they'll find it for you. That'll sign it. You won't have to walk in alone. You'll know somebody, a friendly face from the beginning. And just that dramatically increases people's willingness to try out that first meeting. And that's really important because if you don't try out that first meeting, you never, by definition, can't have your second, third, fourth, and fifth meeting. So it's a really, it's a really sensible, simple thing for clinicians to do. Now, you have one study you quote on that that was kind of small, if I remember right, but it, it changed it from like zero to 80%, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually was even bigger than that. Yes, it's a trial of, tw- of 20 people, and, and it was done by a guy named Sissons, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, with, with only 10 people in each condition, normally you would say, God, what a crazy clinical trial design. You're never going to find an effect like that. But with the warm handoff, there was 100%. 100%. Zero, zero versus it, 100. Yes, yes. Zero it, versus it, it, 100. Which, which what we scientists would call a big finding. <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's might be sort of significant at some level. Yeah. I yeah. call me crazy. Yeah, I, so – I, I, it's so confusing to me. I, you know, I ran a program for 20 years, and we used the mutual aid as sort of a cornerstone of what we were doing. It was, you know, I, I, it, without it, we there literally weren't enough manpower. weren't enough. There certainly weren't enough insurance dollars, and there wasn't even enough manpower 
in this the region I was working in to sit on patients and to be on top of them and to be connected with them the way they need it, particularly early on in their recovery. And it was those people for whom someone had done that for them and that process of giving back keeps them sober. Uh, that was uh, – we couldn't have done it without it. Uh, and it's just I, I, how to get people sort of back uh, not recognizing that. I, I, it's, I don't know what we're going to do. We have to keep moving in that direction it seems to me. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that, and and it's all, and it's also worth saying that the a lot of you know what AA does, the reduces isolation, gives people practical help, gives them support, gives them some accountability, a place to show up. There are other groups emerging now that that also provide that, like Life Ring, uh, uh, sobriety, and Women for Sobriety, and so on. So that it's still possible. People may say, I didn't like the AA you know, thing. I didn't like that message. That doesn't mean you have to be totally cut out of the mutual help world. I mean, there's more and more places where you can go and get those very essential human needs met. I mean, there are needs for people in recovery, but there are needs for everybody. We all need friends. We all yeah. need a place to show up. We no, all need to be held accountable. Yeah. That's right. La- lack of community is one of the big uh, sort of problems in our country today. And this is sort of using community and using relationships as, as a healing instrument. No, absolutely. I mean, think about deaths of despair, which we know we're all reading about the suicide and, you know, opioid overdose. And, and, you know, it's not just economic. I mean, if you if you look at a lot of these folks, it is complete isolation from other people, families broken, friendships have kind of eroded. People don't go to their religious uh, organizations as much as they used to. and, And it's it's lonely out there. Now, one of the one of the concerns uh, I have uh, is that we've moved away from these sort of interpersonal solutions into at least the physicians now thinking that they can solve things like opiate addiction with a pill. And while these sort of interventions may be helpful and they're part of the range of services that we you know for the right patient have to be can be deployed to good to good effect. The idea that the solution for the opiate epidemic is another pill or tab you stick under your tongue or whatever it might be is just wrong-headed, I'm sorry to say. But it's yeah, yeah. certainly is something that is is deeply in our, our medical culture these days. Yeah, I mean, it's the same things that incentivize doctors to prescribe all those opioids in the first place. Yes. Also in you know, incentivize them to prescribe another pill for addiction. And I don't, I don't blame, doc. I mean, I'm, for, I'm a psychologist. I don't have to make those decisions, and I admire my, my colleagues who do, um, where you have, you really wish you had more time with the patient. You want to understand more of what's going on. You'd like to arrange more resources, but you've got the, you know, next patient at the door and an insurer tapping their foot and all that kind of thing. And that drives nothing, nothing a lot ends, of Nothing ends a, a, a patient encounter quicker than a prescription pad. That's exactly right. Yep. And so people are in that system, docs are in that system, and they're doing the best that they can. Um, and even, but, you know, but I, I'm going to, like, I can, I can be a little more critical because I'm in it. They're not trained mm-hmm. in seeing what addiction really is. They don't know the range of this disease. They're trained to trust their patients and not to try to ferret out what is lies and what's BS and what's not. And they've never seen recovery. So I don't understand how they can treat addiction, <laughs> having no experience on any of those fronts, you know, getting used to patients BSing you and then trying to figure out what's, what's real, what's Memorex, uh, understanding the manipulation and the profound motivational disturbances of addiction uh, and the polysubstance use and the lying and whatever else might be going on, and then what recovery even looks like. They've never seen it. I, I, I don't understand yeah. it. 
Yeah, we do a terrible job. I mean, I used to say here at Stanford, I can assure you that the addiction training the med students get is terrible because I do it all myself. Because <laughs> um, I would do like a two-hour lecture in pathophys, yeah. and that yeah. would be it. I mean, it's a bit better, but not we, nowhere I, near enough. I would, give, I would give the lectures at SC, and but for a while there, for about about eight years, I would get a student every two weeks, a third year. And those guys we converted. <laughs> we, we got them uh-huh. indoctrinated because they got to see the patients throughout the spectrum of treatment and recovery, just expose them to it. And that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's, that's why I always ha- have the residents here go to open meetings yeah. because um, – if you're sitting in the inpatient unit, you're kind of subject to Berkson's fallacy of your patients you remember are the ones who return. Yeah. And it's easy to get in the feeling of, oh, they always relapse. This isn't yeah. working. Right. I'm not working. Now I'm, I feel like a failure, which makes me pissed at my patients. Right. And, you know, to get to go into a meeting and then you say, oh, wait, that person was your patient. And my God, look at them now. Yeah, you, know, you can't believe healthy. it. It's, they're, it not, yeah. they're, they're a brand new person. It's, it's, it motivates you to, to have faith for, for any of them because some of them you would not imagine they end up as good as they do. Yeah, that's right. And and that's to me what's really gratifying, you know, in in psychiatry about yeah. addiction is yeah. from the lowest to the highest. Yeah. You see the greatest variability in addiction. Certainly people improve with other conditions, but you don't see many people who say come in with an acute psychotic break and then you see them a year later and they are you know, a thriving at the way someone can be when they're in recovery that, that from addiction. Is, that is exactly right. I, I, I can't tell you how – that's how I got into addiction. I was sort of an expert in – I was the, doing all the medical con, medical care of psychiatric patients in a psych hospital. And, of course, all the drug addicts needed medical services. And then I got used to doing withdrawals and got good at that. And then I saw these people go from young people who were dying – I mean clearly dying and were psychiatrically just so impaired – to these amazing people. I was like, what, what was that? How did that happen? In, in medicine, you go from like severely ill to chronically ill. And certainly in psychiatry, you never go to, like you said, a thriving state of something better than you ever imagined. But I got used to seeing that all the time. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, that's yeah. the gift of being in this field, yeah. as you know. And I wish more docs knew about it because, you know, how many how many docs are in ASAM? Is it 5,000 maybe, something like that? It's not, it's not many, but, but unfortunately, it's, 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 I've been to the meetings and it's filled with a lot of people that really don't know what this is. It's very disturbing. It used to be, I mean, it used to be much more psychologically oriented. And um, it, it's, it, at least they're not advocating for opiates for pain patients anymore, which, which they were sort of doing for a while. You know, how to use opiates properly in chronic pain, like, oh, for God's sakes. So, and, and, and what, what counts for that change? Well, there's fi- finally people woke up to what was going on with the opiates. I, I've been screaming about it for 15 years. Uh, yeah. And, and they're, the last CSAM meeting, the one you spoke at, there finally was a lecture that said, you know, treating people with replacement and or opiates probably gets in the way of the treatment we should be doing. I, I was, almost fell out of my chair when somebody actually said that explicitly. I was like, I've been waiting for this for almost 15 years. And, and just the idea and finally the, the consensus that opiates make pain in, is, A, no science that shows it's a good treatment for chronic pain, and B, probably makes things worse. C, clearly killing people. Hmm, I'm not sure that's a treatment we should be supporting. Yeah, what, what I wish I had known more about the pain research base when I was working in the, in the White House office on drug policy is just 
how short all the trials are. Yes. So yes. And I kind of assumed, well, it was a choice. You know, we've we got to have pain relief, which we, of course, we all want pain relief and we don't want addiction. But I didn't realize, you know, I think most people wouldn't, you know, the typical trials, what, eight weeks or yes. 10 weeks or something. That, that, where that where is, opioids are good. That's you know, right. acute pain, that's they're right. good. But, they are good. You know, they, they get less and, good. And, and uh, that is generally the, the weakness of addiction research generally. The, the time horizons need to be on the order of years, really, and they're never that. And then the way they – the kinds of narrow screening they do and when people are lost to follow-up, they're just – they're not called a, a relapse or a failure. They're just sort of lost to follow-up. It's like, no, those people are using drugs for sure. That's why they're lost to follow-up. And, and so the, I, I'm – a lot of medical re- – of addiction research right now is, is questionable because of that. It has been for quite some time. Yeah, I worry about that. I've done some research on that actually and, and it's – you know, there's certain – institutional incentives to study one substance at a time. Yes. You know, we, we have an institute on yes. alcohol and an institute on drugs, which is kind of crazy. Yes. But, you know, I'm doing an alcohol study, so I want, you know, I want alcohol patients who don't use drugs. Well, that's not very many people. Well, and then, and they, then, go, also, and then they go, and if you use anything else, just tell me. It's like, well, these are drug addicts. They, yeah. they, won't, they, tell they won't tell you. you. They no, tell you. of course they not. Tell you. Yeah. So. Yeah. But. And we also just can't, I mean, the desire, I think, to say, let's, I want, you know, you have to be socially stable to get in my study. We have to be able to find you. You can't be homeless. And it, it gets down to a group of people who are functioning better than the staff in a lot of places. You know, it's so hard right. to get in. Yeah. That's right. It's true niagen. That's right. Dietary supplement designed to boost the key cellular resource called NAD, nicotinamide and adenine dinucleotide. A lot of research today on NAD. Some of the science is preliminary, but uh, I got to tell you, that I've looked at these, this research very carefully, and these early results are quite promising. What is exciting, it's increased NAD level shows potentially may help with cellular metabolism, circadian rhythms. So I use it to prevent jet lag. I actually may slow the effects of aging. There's some research on that as well. Again, very early. Science out there, though, is impressive. Biohacking community has gotten behind the research. I've been intrigued by the possibilities regarding NAD and the research behind True Niagen. Check it out for yourself, the website. You can read all about it. In June, I had the chance to speak with the company's chief scientific advisor, Dr. Charles Brenner, here on this podcast. Fascinating. Piqued my interest. Put me on, and I'm taking it now. My wife's on it, too. I just got her on it. And definitely check out that episode, and you'll see if you're as persuaded as I am. To learn more about the research, science, and the True Niagen supplements, visit trueniagen.com. That's T-R-U-N-I-G-E-N.com today. You probably see me on TV talking about TheraWorks Relief. And if you're one of the millions of Americans who suffer from muscle cramps, your legs, feet, relief is here. TheraWorks Relief, topical foam, clinically proven to relieve muscle cramps fast. And it can even improve muscle cramps before they start. TheraWorks Relief, if you use it before, they can be prevented. For over a year now, I've been recommending TheraWorks Relief to my family, friends, patients. And the results have been really impressive. I've got patients giving it to their family and their other friends. I, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't want them to. I want them to let me just treat them. But I've got, I've got patients giving it to their family and friends and and now, the, you know, TheraWorks is the real deal. Uh, TheraWorks Relief, it's a potentially life-changing product for people whose sleep had been disrupted or couldn't exercise because of cramps. The best thing is you don't need a prescription. It's my choice. TheraWorks Relief, pre- preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours, too. Get TheraWorks Relief today at select CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens Pharmacies or at TheraWorksRelief.com. It's T-H-E-R-A-W-O-R-X, TheraWorks Relief. Also speak to your pharmacist. They are as impressed as I am. Because you don't have to take a medication anymore to relieve cramps. Experience relief for muscle cramps for yourself. That is TheraWorks Relief for your muscle cramps. 
Lions Galore, everybody. The huge summer scorcher sale going on right now. You can get everything up to 50% off. It's one of their biggest sales of the year. Galore Super Summer Scorcher Sale. It won't last forever, so hurry over to BlindsGalore.com to get your windows covered. Two million windows and counting, 20 years of experience. It's ridiculous. They create 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. And not only will your window coverings fit perfectly, but they will look like they belong in your home. They have designer products without the designer price tags. You'll save a ton. And from start to finish, measuring, picking out the perfect window covering, installing it, they have an in-house team of experts that will guide you every step of the way. And they their job is to make sure you're happy with exactly what you get. And if you're like me, it's sort of lame at design. They'll help you with that as well. Either online or over the phone, Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom window treatments you've always wanted. Visit BlindsGalore.com during their big summer scorcher sale for 50% off everything before it ends on August 8th. Let them know I sent you. That is BlindsGalore.com. So I I don't know. I, I just I, – both you and John Kelly have given me inspiration that there's at least a, a, maybe some light ahead that we will sort of regain a balance in all of this and, and try to include the full array of services that are available, including free services that are available around the clock essentially – uh, and, and that's as evidence-based as some of these other evidence-based treatments that for the right person, for the right patient, probably have use but aren't the pill, the answer, the treatment, that it's very individually sort of selected. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, that's something I think for the addiction field, accepting that would actually make us a lot more like the rest of medicine. Yes. You never, I point this out to people who get very much into, you must recover my particular pathway. If uh. you, if someone you loved had cancer and, and you, and you ran them say, how are you doing? Say, well, my cancer's in remission. You would just say, wow, that's terrific. You wouldn't say, well, how did you go into remission? Yeah. Oh, you, radiation. Oh, that's too bad. Could you not get the tamoxifen? Yeah. Yeah. You don't care. Yeah. You're just happy. They're not going to die. Yeah. And, and we, and we, and we got to, be that way in addiction medicine. It's not like a religion, you know, where there's only one way to get to heaven. We should just be happy people are in recovery. Well, it's funny. Some, I'm sorry, yeah, finish your thought. Yeah, it was the real no, I was going to say, it just, it just, that we, we, we just need to be, and, and, and not the rivalry of like, my one way has to be the only way. People are too diverse for that ever to pan out. Yeah. So it's good to have lots of options for people. I, I agree. It, it is weird, though, how people get a religious fervor around these treatment modalities. And it, it I, it's just so weird to me that that we're talking about practice of medicine for God's sakes. There, there's you shouldn't have you should be objective at all times, and what works and what's you know and what you can apply effectively. There shouldn't be about religion, and then and then because sometimes there are religious overtones in the twelve step phenomenon, people accuse the twelve step or mutual aid sort of phenomena itself as being religious, when in fact nothing can be further from the truth. Right, right. It's got a spiritual orientation, but it's clearly not a religion. I'll give you the great stump question I use for stumper I use for my residents is, what society on earth has the fastest growing twelve step fellowship? Oh, it's Iran or Iraq or something, right? You, you got it. Yeah, yeah good for you. They never get it because you know Iran. It can't be Iran. It's a Muslim country. You know, it's like yeah, that's right. I mean, you know it. It's booming and, you know, kind of booming. It, it does very well in extremely secular countries like, you know, Sweden or uh, Norway and so on. So it's extremely, extremely adaptable. But people, yeah, people get religious about, you know, you have to do, you know, sometimes it's an emotional thing. Like, I walked this road and it saved me, so of course I want to tell you about it. Yeah. But people are very religious. I mean, I, I mean I'm so glad we have 
methadone and buprenorphine, but people can get very religious about that also. Yes. Just, you know, um, opioids, uberales. Yes. And, um, you know, you mu- everyone must be on this or you will certainly relapse. It's like, well, first off, you know, a lot of people don't do well on those medications. Second, there's people who just don't want to be in an opioid. So you'd be forcing it down the patient's throat, literally. Um, some people just, you know, they, they, they are, they're sick of the effects of opioid and they really want to try something else. I don't think we can just cast them into the darkness and say, you know, there's, you, you, you either could take an opioid or you're, or you're out. But there are people who have that attitude, and I find that very destructive. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the cozy relationship between our government and NIDA and the buprenorphine manufacturers. I, I don't understand all those patent exceptions and all these things. And by the way, there are four other manufacturers of buprenorphine out there that are less expensive. Why aren't we also uh, – it's all very shady and concerning to me. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But I just got a bad feeling about it because it, it, it's too enthusiastic and it's too – Things are happening that don't seem right to me. But what do you think? I, I don't know about the, the specific relationships, but I do know about the economics, which are that to bring a drug to market usually costs the pharma company like eight hundred million to one point two billion dollars. NIDA's budget is a billion dollars a year, and IAAA's budget is about half that. So if that's the kind of financing that the public or our politicians are going to give to developing addiction medicine, that means basically we're counting on the private sector to do it. You know, there is there is no other way with that, you know, minimal level sure. of investment. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at the fact that, you know, about a fifth of all deaths in this country, actually even a little more than that, are due to smoking, drinking, you know, using drugs. It's crazy to me they are so small, you know, mm. um, you know, and and the the way the way to me to see get to make sure the public is represented and there's not corruption from the private industry is invest more in public science. Those those institutes should be way bigger. And yes, I know that would help help my career, but I'm, I I will feel that way long after I'm retired and not interested in grants anymore. It just seems that we don't necessarily invest the money where the public health impact is. Yes, I, I think most people would would agree with you on that. The other thing that scares me about the buprenorphine enthusiasm is you're accused of killing patients if you try abstinence-based therapy treatments. Like that patient's going to die if they don't take this medicine. That, that's sort of in, on, again in, on the medical side. That's what that much like we were told if we didn't treat pain adequately, we were going to prison or going to a civil court. This is the same kind of pressure being applied to doctors to use replacement therapies. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly I've certainly heard that said and. And I, you know, I think sometimes people are ill motivated. I think sometimes they're just, you know, well motivated. They're just scared because, you know, everyone has had the experience of having patients die both from opioids, but also, you know, being released from treatment and then losing tolerance and then dying. And um, you know, even people of goodwill can end up in, you know, ferocious fights about this. I mean, I'm sure you, I'm sure you've seen yeah. it. I've seen it. I just think it's it's sometimes, you know, certain treatments are more dangerous than others, but this is a deadly disease. And the question is, you know, what's the probability that you can return this person to a thriving existence with abstinence versus that being a, a too risky a path to take? And we should be able to make those assessments, right? Yeah, it, it, well, we should be able to. I, I, I think it's very hard, though. I mean, I don't know how confident you feel in the evidence base we have on that, but I it, Going back to the thing we were talking about earlier of studies being short-term, 
um, you know, it's not that helpful to know what's going to happen in the next 12 weeks. Yeah. You, know, you really need to know what's going to happen over the next, you know, years. Yes. And, and, and think there's a way oncology is really ahead of us. You know, if you get a cancer, you can go online and see, I have this stage cancer. What are my odds of living for five years? Mm-hmm. What are my odds for 10 years? There's nothing like that in addiction where you can say, you know, this is my problem, I, you know, and I've been sober or clean for three months. What are my odds of making it, you mm-hmm. know, for another year or five years? And, you know, we don't have that. Was and that's you, bad for docs, bad for patients. Was it you that advocated that we do some of the, you know, graphing that we do much in the way we do in oncology? You know, absolutely. I'm yeah. sure I'm not the only person who said that. But I, I found that really valuable. Like very early in my career, re- reading George uh, Valiant's work um, that, you know, he had, he had in very unusual samples, all, you know, males, all New England and everything, but nonetheless, showing that people who met criteria for whatever they called it then, alcoholism probably uh, at DSM-2, but if they made four years of sobriety, there was a nine shot out of 10 that they would die sober. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's incredibly useful information. You know, that's as close as you can get to remission. If you make it four years with no drinking, you know, 90% chance you'll be sober the rest of your life. Um, that'd be great to have that for cocaine, for benzodiazepines, yeah. for opioids, and we don't have it. Mm. Do, you, do you suspect that it's similar? That's a great question. I mean, you know, it's, there's so many variables going on. There's the pharmacology, yeah. but then there's also availability issues, right? Yeah. So, you know, whatever the number was for smoking in 1950 is going to be wildly different than it is today where, you know, just people smoke a lot less. You don't, people don't offer you a cigarette. You can't bum a cigarette as easily. So, like, right now for opioids, they're so available. Um, you know, there's just – I just saw a study the other day that just surgery – generates 3.3 billion excess opioid pills a year. Yes. So, so you know, the, uh, you know your, your, your ability to relapse, if that's, a, if, if that's the right term, is incredibly high in a way it wasn't 20 years ago. Right. It's probably harder to, to stop using opioids now than it was back then. Was it the Kaplan-Meier curve you wanted to sort of initiate, that kind of, or that exact curve, or something different? Uh, I was just thinking more of a consumer kind of... Um, you know, a uh, set of information like you have for cancer. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you, I mean, you, you've taken care of patients. You know how desperate people are. Yeah. And uh, it's both disturbing but also kind of embarrassing. I can't tell people, like, you know, if you do all this stuff, what are your odds yeah. of being around five years from now? That's an absolutely legitimate question that we really don't have a lot of ability to answer. So I, I'm not, I wasn't thinking of anything, you know, super complicated, just the opposite. I would like something we could put in consumer reports. Uh, and say, here, here are your odds. If, and if you do this, here's how your odds change. Well, if you do this, your odds change dramatically because it just uh, the moment the addict starts following directions and becoming honest, the odds go very much in their favor. Yeah, and every, and I think it's like every month of sobriety builds, you know, increases your odds for the next month of sobriety. And, and I think that message is important because, it, you know, it's so... It's so unpleasant early on. Um, there's, it, there's, more, there's a high work-to-play ratio. Um, but then, you know, as people get through that, they start to discover, you know, the, the next six months of sobriety, the next year without, it's a lot better than the last. And they, get, they get more of the joy. Yeah. Um, and we could, you know, can, we, you know, they need a lot of support as they go through that. And, and I think it's also such things, informational support. You can tell them, like, this is, this is the junkiest part of, of what you're going to go through. You're going to feel way better in three months or six months. would help people have rational hope. John Kelly has sort of a famous slide in one of his lectures where he shows how many, I think it's four treatments in five years to get one year of sobriety. 
Uh, and then if you get four years of sobriety, your your risk of relapse goes back down to normal, or your risk yeah. of, of alcoholism goes to normal. Yeah, he's done a, he's done a lot of tremendous work, and I'm I'm always maybe when my my career's over, I'll look back and think you know if I think of the smartest things I ever did, hiring John Kelly has got to be one of them. <laughs> you know, getting to work with him was ter- terrific, and it, it broke my heart when he. Uh, decided to move back to, to Boston, but, you know, good for Harvard. You know, they, they benefit from having him there. Now, you mentioned methadone a few minutes ago. Is it Robert DuPont that was so involved in the Nixon administration putting out the whole methadone program? I forget his yeah, first uh, name. His yeah, name was, it was, it, there were two figures. I mean, Jerry Jaffe was Nixon's first right, drug czar. That's and right. he had been working in Chicago. And Bob, who's a uh, friend of mine, yeah. proud to say, had, had done a lot of methadone work in uh, Washington D.C. Yes. and what he found was that there, that almost everybody caught up in the criminal justice system in Washington D.C. was using heroin, right. and you know providing uh, methadone to open up the first clinics. They saw this huge drop in crime in Washington, which impressed Nixon's people. Of wow, this is a way we could do something that it's normally very hard to do from a White House, which is deliver street crime reductions, and that's what got them interested. And and he he's he was initially an enthusiast, and then he dampened that enthusiasm quite a bit because he realized you know it's sort yeah. of methadone is sort of a prison. It's impossible to get people off of it, and some people can function with it, some people can't, and some people use other drugs while they're using the methadone, and some people, if they're using enough to stop using other drugs, can't get off the couch and can't really function. So it's it's a it's a tough drug. But yeah, well, Bob, Bob's someone you should have in the show. I did because he's incredibly. Oh, you did. I, I did. It's a different show. I had him on for the people who are listening. I had him on the you the uh, this life podcast, which is available on my website. But yes, I did. Oh, that's. That's yeah. terrific because an interesting career in, in politics and in science. But I mean, the point he, he he makes to me over and over again about you know methadone treatment is how many people on methadone are using other substances yes. and the program doesn't do anything. That's right. And and you see, there's just there was just a paper uh, by two British, uh, very uh, bright guy, uh, John Strang, and then Wayne Hall from Australia about in the British methadone system, there seems to be some evidence that people are actually ramping up their alcohol consumption year on year while yeah, being sure. on methadone terrible for their health yeah. and again like they don't test for that and they sort of tolerate it and they really, yeah. they really should be intervening it's crazy and and so i was sort of whining to dr dupont about some of the stuff i've been whining to you about too is that the the you know the excessive enthusiasm for replacement therapies and he said something interesting that that made me think and and i want to sort of ask you the if you have a different take on it, he goes, well, he goes, yeah, I would rather there not be that. It'd be great if we could return everybody to thriving. But the only chance for scaling up the necessary intervention, given how massive this problem is, opiate addiction, is something like Suboxone. And I thought, huh. We Actually, what, what prompted him to say that was I said, you know, they want every physician to prescribe to 200 of these people. I, I know what I'm doing. I couldn't handle 20 of them. And that means they don't know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, they're scaling up, but this is sort of unskilled scaling and going to end up in trouble. And he just said, look, it's the only the only potential option. And I, that sort of made my heart sink a little bit because, you know, tw- mutual aid is another way to scale. But maybe it's too unmanageable or too difficult a message to put out there. I, I, I don't know. But what do you think? Um, you know, it, there, there is the French experience, which, which was uh, a substantial ramping up nationally of buprenorphine in a nationalized health system, and they did uh, uh, have a, a remarkable drop in heroin deaths. And, uh, for a know, while. Heroin for, for now, yeah. though. It's, it's back to our yeah. maybe kicking the can down the road. 
the well, that that, that could well be, but that that's a you know I mean, maybe what uh, Bob was thinking about as an example. Yeah. And it is true, health you know the healthcare system can ramp up medication provision faster yes, than anything else. That's right. I mean, for for example, I mean one thing I would love to see. You know, I, I've had some pain issues in my life, and I you know my insurance, thank God, covered physical therapy, and I yeah. needed to take a bunch of sessions. Learn, and you know, there's very few, very few physical therapists. There's very few interdisciplinary pain teams, that's, that's right. the kind of thing of ramping up, which would take a big investment yep. that would be super helpful, yep. reducing people's pain, reducing lines, and we tend not to do that. We tend to do the, the quickie kinds of things. That's, how we, got into, that's how we got into this problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly how we got into it. On a mutual aid front, you know, the thing, thing about it is, I, I guess the thing about it I love is that we don't control it. You know, there is no way a, a unit of government can order... Uh, you know, twelve-step groups to do anything, yeah. um, and and so and some say, oh, then then they're out of our control and we can't ramp them up. That's true, but we also can't screw them up either. You know, they're they're going to do what they do, and they are growing. I can say around here, particularly, what's growing are the family organizations. Oh, I don't. Um, I'm aware of that. Yeah, some of those yeah, actually so, scare me a little bit because they may they they're not as disciplined in their sometimes as their. Uh, Let's just say they're not as disciplined. They they tend to make a little more claim to sort of therapeutic process than maybe they should sometimes. But so be it. That's fine. I'm so glad to see them working and trying. They, they're very yeah, well, well intended. What I see around here is, it, it, and it's interesting, a lot of people go to Al-Anon even though the family problem is around opioids. Yes. But, you know, that the, the, the isolation great. is so profound, yeah. you know, for these families yep. that have lost kids. Or are worried about losing their kids, yep. and this is a very. And I live in an area where I think people put a lot of front on. You know, I'm, people feel they need to be successful all the time. Yeah. And to just go in a room where you can grieve and say, you know, my family is frightening and sad, and I feel like a failure, and I feel like, you know, it's just absolutely vital for for people because yes. there's no. It's really different than, you know, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, the AIDS epidemic hit communities that already felt like communities. You know, it destroyed, like, mm-hmm. the Castro and San Francisco. Those people knew each other, loved each other, had relationships. Mm-hmm. The opioid epidemic is hits, you know, one person here and then another mm-hmm. person down the street. They don't know. And then everybody doesn't want to talk about it. So there isn't, you know, uh, a, a community around this problem mm-hmm. uh, that there, like there was around AIDS. And so, uh, you know, that in, you know, the fact that Alan does that and, and, and the, uh, you know, the Narcotics Anonymous Family Groups, do that, I think that's really important. And it also may be a basis for more political pressure uh, in the long term because we need that. And I I want to qualify something I just said. When you said the family groups, uh, categorically the 12-step oriented codependency groups are unassailable. I was thinking about some of the family groups that are springing up all over the place that are sort of ad hoc. They don't really Mm. follow the same kind of structure. They kind of do. Usually all the participants are also in Al-Anon, but there's a lot of – quote family support groups out there of all stripes and and they're they're really well meaning but they they get in over their head a little bit sometimes so mm, that's different yeah. than Al-Anon they're different and and the and, and Narcanon and whatnot uh, the the, the uh, narcotic anonymous family groups new to podcast 1 it's the Amber Rose show with Dr. Chris join them each Thursday as they take your call share expert advice and talk all things sex relationships and self empowerment it's a judgment-free zone. We want you to be a part of the conversation. Don't miss a second of it. Check out The Amber Rose Show with Dr. Chris at Podcast One and Apple Podcast. Also, remember to rate and review. And since it's the summer of love and in honor of the Bachelorette finale this week, you may also want to check out Off the Vine with Caitlin Bristow 
and Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig with Heather and Terry Dubrow, exclusively on Podcast One. Get Quip. That's right. Q-U-I-P. I give you a challenge. Find a gift that is affordable, practical, Instagram-worthy. That is Quip at the top of the list. Quip offers optional subscription plans, delivering a new brush head on dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. That's right. It's a new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into an ultra-slim design with guiding pulses to simplify better brushing at a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. Quip comes with a mount. Quip offers that subscription plan. And Quip's electric toothbrush is featured in just about every guide this year. It's backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Quip starts at just $25. Right now, you can go to getquip.com slash Drew to get your first refill pack free when you buy that Quip electric toothbrush. That is your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Drew. That is G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash D-R-E-W. Go to getquip.com slash Drew. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Fewer long-distance trips, more FaceTime, just the click of a mouse. And in 2018, the clear winner is Zoom. I don't know if you listen to the uh, This Life podcast, the Hashtag You Live podcast, but they are all using Zoom. We have found Zoom to be so much superior to everything else that we use it. We use it constantly. It's flawless video, pin drop clear audio. HD is striking. And the first time, you can also see up to 25 participants live on the screen. I'm telling you, it is easy to use. You can share anything with anyone with Zoom, any device, a Word file, a spreadsheet, a presentation check. This is what video conferencing, when we thought about it and created it, this is what we wanted it to be. Zoom has done it. It's everything you've always wanted in video communication. Amazing features. I mean, there's a reason we use this. And when people ask me to use some of the other ones, I say, just can we just please use Zoom, please? It's just so much easier. You can even set up a green screen behind you, make a backdrop of your logo or whatever it is you want. You can do it all. You can do it all. Everything you wanted to do in video conferencing, you can now do with Zoom. Now, if you already use Zoom, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, just find out by visiting zoom.us, Z-O-O-M.us to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Set up the free account today. Free. I'm not kidding. Free account. Zoom.us. You will thank me. I guarantee it. Um, but why, Why you know, they're going to spend all this money on, you know, buprenorphine. Why not spend money on education about 12-step mutual aid and making that cool or somehow diminishing stigma or making it, you know, getting behind it? I, I, I went to the meeting in the East Room that uh, Trump's cabinet had and, uh, you know, I saw, heard some great ideas. I was optimistic for the first time that the government's going to be useful in this whole thing. I grabbed um, – Who's the former head of the VA? Um, the guy that just oh, lost uh, his job. I, sh- I would say Shubin, but it's not. That's not the right name. Sh- Shorkin. Shorkin. David, David Shulkin. Shulkin. Yeah. And he, I, I grabbed him. I said, "Are you aware of this Cochrane study coming out?" No. And how's that possible? And I and I said, "Look, I, what I got him to sort of focus on was the warm handoff." And he thought, "Because he was an excellent clinician, I could tell just by chatting with him that he he knows his stuff." And uh, the, the warm handoff made sense to him. He's like, okay, that, that makes sense. That may be what we're missing. But it was hard to get him even to even think about 12-step. Uh, so it I just seems that there's uh, – certainly in, in the VA, shouldn't there be opportunities there? 
Well, I mean, Chris Timko's great warm handoff study was done in the VA with veterans. Yeah, yeah. So clearly opportunity. And some of the work Rudy Moose and I did showing uh, the cost offset, meaning, you know, the programs that really helped people get into 12-step, the, the vets were far less likely to come back and need more psychiatric sure. care and need more inpatient visits. So it made economic sense. So, yeah, there's huge opportunities in, in, in the VA to do that. Um, yeah, and it doesn't end up on the radar uh, that much. In fact, John Kelly and I and Bill White and Mark Alanda wrote a piece a while ago just about how Narcotics Anonymous has almost gone unmentioned yeah. uh, in, in yes. this uh, crisis. It's, and, uh, yeah, and yet it's got hundreds of thousands of people in it who are you know, living productive well, lives. And, and, and that room that, that day, you know, where there was a room full of people in recovery there. And, uh, you know, and I was, I was hell-bent on getting every ear I could. And I, you know, I got Kellyanne and I got Shulk and I got a couple of those. And I just kept saying, you want, want, it's free. It's free. It's free. When are we, the ONDCP, the head of the ONDCP, this is free, you guys. Advocate. Advocate for the free services. Why not? Why wouldn't you? And uh, it's, I don't know, it, there's a little bit of a, of a headwind on that. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's tensions there. There's one is the, you know, there's the, the, some professionals, even those who like the 12-step the would say, well, if we say there's something free, then they won't fund treatment. Uh, and that is a risk. Things get used that uh, way. And second, there's the medication tension, uh, right, of, you know, uh, you know, people in NA or AA, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, say, you know, you shouldn't be on an antidepressant. Yeah, you, know, you shouldn't be on methadone. Although I, I have to say, I haven't known them to say it more than anyone I meet on the street. Right. I mean, if you, That's if right. you stop 100 people in the street and say, what do you think of antidepressants? What do you think of methadone? You'll get a lot of negative things said. Um, so I, I actually find that people in the program are a bit more tolerant uh, than, than the average person. Yes. But nonetheless, that's in the soup. That's creating some tension, um, which is unfortunate because uh, everybody wins when people get in recovery by whatever route that oh, they yeah. do. And it's, in, it's so. contagious, too, the, in, in many – and it's contagious to the family and the friends and everybody else gets well with it. And uh, I think people would support mini dose of LSD more than antidepressants these days, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> even though we, know, we have no idea what that is yet. My goodness! No, it's it's happening here. I, I you know, I, I hope it's not damaging. I have no idea. That's exactly so. where I feel. I hope I hope it's not damaging because I've certainly seen a lot of damage from more standard doses of that drug. Uh, have you read the book Dreamland? Yes, I have. Yeah. I talked with Sam actually oh, good. a couple times. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, that's that's a great book. Great book. In fact, it, it it's a great book to, for you know the, the opioid epidemic overturns a lot of people's understandings about drug policy in several. Senses. One is that uh, if you if you legalize a, dr- a potent drug, it will, things will necessarily go well. And instead, we had incredible regulatory capture and bad corporate behavior. And the second is that the legal and the illegal markets will always compete with each other. Mm. And you know, his book showed how they actually facilitate each other. I mean, yep. that once everybody's hooked on oxy in places like where I'm from, West Virginia, Southern Ohio, then the, the Jalisco uh, boys said, oh, well, let, let's start selling heroin up there. And so it shows sort of supply and demand work differently for drugs than they do for you know, almost any other product, where you normally say, well, if the legal market's providing it, the black market will wither. In this case, the legal market providing it made the black market return to life. Heroin markets were kind of dead up to that point. Could that happen with cannabis, do you think? That's a great question. I think it's certainly possible. I'm I'm way more worried about cannabis than a lot of other people are um, uh, because it's so much stronger than uh, it's ever been. I mean, the average THC in Washington State's legal market is 20%. 
and the change in national use is really striking is, you know, consumption's going up by volume about 10% a year, mm. but the number of users is going up way lower than that. Mm-hmm. And the only way that could be happening is that if that uh, more and more people are clustering in the daily, uh, at ne- every day or nearly every day smoker. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what that does. I mean, you know, we, I, if we look at a longitudinal study, you know, by definition, it's out of date. You know, like in 10-year effects of marijuana, you're talking about marijuana that might have been, you know, 5 to 10% THC smoked once a week. Now you have a world where it's 20% and lots of people are smoking every single day. What does that do? We just don't know. And, um, you know, I, I, I really worry about it in part because nobody is worrying about it. It's right. still, the mantra is it's harmless. No, no, think the, that's the opposite. Best that way to get in trouble. Good for, it's good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think the best way to get in trouble with drugs is to say that you can't get in trouble with drugs. Right. Um, if everyone was worried, I'd probably relax. But because people yeah. seem so relaxed about it, I feel worried. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and the, the logic that, you know, alcohol is a good drug and cannabis is a bad drug, that, that, that logic has been around for a while, and that's just flawed. I mean, they're all have their own, we have, as humans have a relationship with these chemicals, it, it's either works out okay or it has lots of problems with it psychiatrically and otherwise. Oh, yeah. And also just even admitting that alcohol is a drug, yeah. uh, which, which of course it is pharmacologically. But it's amazing how, you know, you know th- there were senators who felt comfortable stumbling out onto the Senate floor half in the bag, yeah. railing about how drugs were destroying our yes, society. Right. and didn't see any contradiction. Yeah. Yes. That, that's, uh, alcohol is, 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 remains a grave concern. And uh, to try to justify, you know, alcohol is, is, uh, is an anathema and, and – and, a delusion, frankly. So, well, listen, Keith. I know you have to go very soon, so I'm going I'm to kind of wrap this up. It just is such a privilege to talk to you. I've, you, have, you have no idea. I'm keeping careful track of you. I listen to your lectures where I can find them, and I, I'm enlightened all the time. And it's just nice to know somebody who knows the literature and knows what he's talking about is is reinvigorating something that has, has been unfortunately sidelined for a while. And it, it really is, has always worked. It's always been there. It's, it's, I think your data shows that it's the most common, maybe it was John's, most common uh, sort of source of mental health services in the country still, even though it yeah. was sort of been sort of marginalized. It's what 60% of all mental health services end up in a 12-step type program. Yeah. When someone in this country leaves their house going to any type of outpatient care, the most likely bet is they're going to a mutual health group. Yeah. And is there any place people can learn more if they want to sort of learn this, understand more about the topic we've been discussing today? Yeah, I mean, there's two places. Uh, John has the Recovery uh, Research Institute at Harvard, and uh, that summarizes a lot of the science and so on. And the other place is that a number of the lectures I've given about addiction, about uh, AA, are uh, on YouTube. And, you know, people can go there and, uh, and listen until they are cured of any insomnia that may be afflicting them. No, stop it. And, and I, may I, I, I'm giving a couple talks about it, but I'd love to be able to quote you on some of the things uh, we've been discussing today. Is that uh, okay with you? Oh, sure, of With course. proper attribution and whatnot, of course. But uh, I just think uh, you guys are just – you're getting it right. And if we could just get people to wake up and listen, and uh, both uh, the public and our peers, I, I just think we would just do so much good for, for a problem that my profession created, which is this opioid epidemic. I mean, we did it. We did it, we did it in 1890, and we did it again now. And, yeah. uh, and, and we made all the mistakes then that we're starting to make now uh, in terms of – you know, treating opiate addiction with cocaine or alcohol or uh, treating alcohol addiction with opiates. We, we've done it before. We've done replacement therapies forever. 
And again, not saying that maybe we didn't can't be done properly. Of course, they can be. But to be the, the solution or there even to think in terms of there being a solution for a given patient is anathema. So uh, hopefully we can be more sophisticated. Yeah, I hope so, too. And it was really kind of you to reach out, and I, I enjoyed the conversation. Let's, Thank you. Let's be sure to talk to each other in person next time we're at the same conference. 100 percent. And uh, I'll try to get your email address, and uh, I think Gary has that, and we will get that in a minute. And uh, please stay in touch. Oh, thanks a you lot, too. Th- Have a good night. Dr. Humphries, thank you so much. And uh, that'll do it for me. We'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.